What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Mike Gonzalez is the CEO and co-founder at Trace, the first service desk for finance teams. Before Trace, Mike developed a deep empathy for the problems finance teams face as the vice president of finance and strategy at Zenefits, where he led FP&A. Before that, Mike built and managed financial systems at Facebook. In this conversation, we discuss working at Facebook and Zenefits, building finance teams, real-time data, financial planning, asset allocation, startups, and entrepreneurship. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mike, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Public Rec. Public Rec is where indoor comfort meets outdoor style. They simply make the most comfortable clothes in the world. I'm literally talking about them right now while wearing a Public Rec sweatshirt. Their best-selling all-day, everyday pants is a stylish alternative to sweatpants and a more comfortable alternative to jeans. Facts, I wear them. From the couch to the gym to the grocery store and everywhere in between, Public Rec has you covered. Comfort starts with a better fit. You can get free shipping and free returns if you go to publicrec.com slash pomp. Use code POMP at checkout and you'll get 10% off. Literally, Public Rec is the most comfortable clothes that I own. I wouldn't say it unless it was true. Go to publicrec.com slash POMP. Use code POMP10 at checkout for 10% off your order. Again, go to publicrec.com slash POMP and use code POMP to get 10% off your order. Next up is Kraken. They are one of the largest and oldest Bitcoin exchanges in the world. Kraken is consistently named one of the best places to buy and sell crypto online thanks to their excellent service, low fees, versatile funding options, and rigorous security standards. But that is only part of the story. They've been on the forefront of the blockchain revolution since 2011. I've had Jesse, the CEO, on the podcast before. They help fund Bitcoin development. They've got a ton of Bitcoiners like Pierre Rochard and Dan Held and many others that work there. Go check them out. Kraken.com. K-R-A. K-E-N.com. Kraken.com. K-R-A-K-E-N.com. One of the largest and oldest Bitcoin exchanges in the world and your new favorite place to buy and sell cryptocurrencies. Last but not least are my friends over at Unstoppable Domains. Unstoppable Domains has teamed up with OKX to make crypto simpler by supporting dot crypto domains on their exchange. Unstoppable Domains allows you to receive over 70 cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Chainlink with a single blockchain domain name. This makes it so much easier for millions of users to send and receive crypto by using their name, like pomp.crypto. It's the stress-free experience needed for mainstream crypto adoption. Plus, dot crypto domains are NFTs that are stored in your wallet, so you permanently own them and can transfer to your other wallets as needed. Go to unstoppabledomains.com and get your name dot crypto to make your crypto life easier. Again, unstoppabledomains.com. And if you really, really want to help us out on the podcast, you can go to unstoppabledomains.com slash R slash pomp. Why is it slash R slash pomp? I don't know, but that's what they told me. So go to unstoppabledomains.com slash R slash pomp and go get your domain today. All right, let's get into this episode with Mike. I really hope you enjoy this one. 
Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, what's up? Bang, bang. We're in a studio. We'll have more on that later. Today, I've got a special guest for you, my friend, Mike, probably one of my best friends. We've got all kinds of crazy stories that we are not going to talk about on the podcast today, Uh, but we used to live together in San Francisco along with a bunch of other people uh, who we will not bring on the podcast because they're too outrageous. Uh, What's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing great. You were the first person in this room. It's nice. You got a good setup here. Yeah. Mike sat down and he looked around and it was one of those looks of like, uh, oh shit, this is real. (laughs) (laughs) This is big time. All right. Uh, let's start. I, I actually have notes. I'm going to be really serious for like two episodes and then I'll go back to being myself. Um, let's just talk about your background first. Uh, we met at Facebook, but before your Facebook, what did you do? Uh, before Facebook, I was a consultant. Uh, so sp- spent time building financial systems for big fortune 100 businesses, GE, Chai, Kref, some property group. Um, so right at the start of my career, just thrown into the deep end, uh, building financial systems, First day on the job, they dropped a 300-page user manual on my desk. They said, Oracle, Hyperion, Strategic Finance, you got two weeks, go figure it out. Uh, so it was pretty intense. But I think for me, I felt really fortunate. I was just working with finance executives, learning the ropes, uh, and building the financial systems, you get a chance to build their financial models. So you understand every single driver, all the different levers, how the business model works. Uh, and so being able to work across a bunch of different industries, seeing a bunch of different processes, helped me early on in my career build these mental maps of like, okay, this is how corporate finance is done. This is how, when you watch CNBC and you get the earnings and it's like, okay, we are pre- here's our earnings projections, here's our guidance. Here's how all this is done. Here's how all this is made. That accuracy becomes so important. Uh, so yeah, really fortunate to start off my career building those types of systems. Did a project with Facebook. Uh, a couple, a few weeks into it, project was going really well. Uh, the uh, VP of Enterprise Engineering took me on the long walk in the middle in the middle of Facebook uh, and started recruiting me. Uh, and you know, I was you know at the time living in Chicago, uh, had a condo, like life was kind of set, like was really kind of you know had good friends and like my family was there. Uh, gave me an offer to join Facebook, and you know he was like exploding offer. You got two weeks. This was like right around Christmas. Uh, ended up accepting the offer. New Year's Eve, moved out of my place. New Year's Day, I was in San Francisco. Uh, and I think we stumbled into each other like a, a couple weeks. Once you go that. on the walk, they got you. <laughs> like, like for those that don't know, at Facebook, if you go on the walk, they have you because there's a long walk. They're like, look how great this place is, yeah. and then they're like, oh, by the way, here's an offer. Uh, you should take this, and then, <laughs> and then you take it. That's how they get you there. Yeah. Uh, all right. Before we get into Facebook, because uh, I feel like that's like a very specific uh, situation. Yep. These financial systems, I think most people don't understand like how intricate and complex they are. Yep. So you mentioned um, like projecting earnings, yep. literally down to the cent, right? Or yep. to the dollar. Um, and is it fair to say that like all this is, it's just people are taking all the inputs, 
They're then saying, all right, we're going to run it through our historicals plus whatever we think are the new inputs. And then literally it gives us an output for this system. And that's how we're going to like literally manage the business. So on a day-to-day basis, we can tell, are we ahead or below uh, the projections, where we believe we're going to be? And like, really, that's like kind of what is the heartbeat of the business to some degree, right? Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, a business is about, you know, taking in cash to generate more cash and driving those returns. Uh, And what's interesting, you mentioned kind of like, the day-to-day, you know, and I think the problem with current state financial systems is you don't have that day-to-day visibility. And I think people spend a lot of times building these financial plans. And the way that typically works is the finance team will work with board of directors, executive management team, and they'd say, okay, here's roughly what we think the business should look like. Very top-down exercise, planning very strategically around, okay, here's the initiatives that we want to do. Here's the market share that we want to take. Uh, here's the growth po- profile that we think we need to have. Um, and then that always kind of cascades down to the different department leads and the business leaders. Uh, and so then there's this really big exercise to say, okay, here's rough shape of what the business should look like, guidance. Then every single functional head in a business, VP of product, VP of engineering, sales, marketing, every single group kind of has their guidance and their targets. Then they go operationalize that and they say, okay, what projects do we want to do? Who do we need to hire? What pieces of software that we need to buy? And they substantiate those targets with what people describe as a bottoms up build. And so this is like bottoms up, everybody in the business, what are they actually going to to do to execute on those plans, make sure that they can hit their goals, hit those targets. Uh, and so there's a lot of kind of just information that cascades down and then it needs to cascade up. Um, and that's a long process. Like it takes a really long time to do those plans. I mean, people typically, you know, start that process maybe Q3 where they start thinking about this stuff for the for the following year. And then almost all of Q4 sometimes for some of these businesses is consumed with this planning exercise. And then what my biggest insight was is being a part of that at so many different businesses, being part of at Facebook, leading the finance team at, at Zenefits, building these financial plans is you spend all this time creating those plans and immediately as you say, okay, this plan is done, it's set, it just collects dust, you know, and it just sits there. Then people actually go off and execute, you know, like, okay, we've set our annual plan. Literally two or three weeks later, you know, your marketer's like, uh, actually, I'm going to double down on this project, punt on this project. Instead of a full-time hire, I'm going to hire a contractor, you know, and they make all these different changes. Uh, and that is really tough to capture from a finance team who spent all this time building this model. It's just a, it's just a model. Uh, and so that's kind of what brings us to Trace, where I've, like, I've learned these insights, saw this problem. And I think finance, it needs to be more real time. It needs to have that day-to-day visibility. What are the actual decisions that people are making and how does that impact our financial results? And that's exactly what, you know, so we founded Trace a a few years ago uh, to solve that problem where we help people make those day-to-day decisions. They can purchase, they can hire, they manage their projects. uh, And then we help give them real-time visibility into, okay, how does that actually impact our plan? Uh, And the way that takes effect in our product is you get, you know, a top-down target and then people can execute and then you can make sure that you set that guidance you told wall street like what you're going to do let's make sure that as we're executing we have that day-to-day visibility uh into into uh yeah how we're gonna how we're gonna do what we're gonna do the, the other way to do it the old way is like set our financial plan everything happens we add everything up in the accounting system and then we hope that it, it, it matches and then we try to do like an analysis and understand that variance it almost feels like there's a uh, a complete disjointment between the finance team and then like the rest of the teams right and the rest of the teams they're getting told by the finance team hey your budget is to hire three people uh, and we need you know 10 million dollars of revenue from you this year 
And then the team's like, okay, cool. And then they go and they kind of do whatever they want. And they hope that they come back with the numbers. And, you know, I'm overgeneralizing, but like to some degree, the finance team doesn't really know until they come back, whether it's on a weekly, monthly or quarterly basis, what those financial performance numbers look like. And so it's almost like this infrequent, uh, non-real-time understanding of the business, right? And and that's where you get some of the quarterly uh, projections and, and numbers and stuff like that. So it sounds like the solution here is just make it as dynamic as possible, shorten the feedback loops and make it more real time, right? And that's essentially what you guys are ultimately trying to do. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about Facebook. Uh, I'm gonna tell a quick story to tell you how, how good of friends Mike and I are. Some of our old colleagues may listen to this and just laugh. Uh, I used to ping Mike on uh, Facebook and, uh, and Messenger, which the company uses, and I'd be like, hey man, uh, are you busy? And it'd be like, noon. He'd be like, Nah, I got like some free time this afternoon. I'm like, all right. And then we would put a meeting <laughs> invite on our calendars and for like, you know, 30, 45, maybe an hour. And then we'd go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> for the same time. And, yeah. And, and we'd go to the gym and we'd work out and it would just be like meeting with Mike. And literally we'd go to the gym and we'd just talk about it. Like we usually would actually talk about like business related stuff. But that was our like escape is if we had a slow day, we'd go do it. So we're, we're, we're pretty good friends and we've been doing uh, stuff together for a long time. Yeah. We used to also wake up 4.30 a.m., take that first shuttle in, no traffic, get yeah. the first ones in the office. P- people, uh, I'd I laugh the whole Miami thing. It's like, man... In San Francisco, uh, back in probably 2010, 12, 13, 14, like nobody cared about the tech industry. And then all of a sudden they had like Facebook and Google and LinkedIn and all these buses going through their city. And they were like, hey, who are these people? Like, not cool. And so I think that like that's the big uh, thing that Miami's got to be careful of is that like right now nobody cares about the tech people. But if you go and you do crazy stuff, then they're probably going to care a lot. Yeah. yeah. I I actually always give you credit for that because when I was living in Chicago, I was a consultant, big Fortune 100 businesses, you know, and I used to watch CNBC. I really cared about the markets and like, you know, and then I moved to San Francisco and, you know, Facebook was a publicly traded company at the time, but started getting immersed in the world of startups, you know, and I think being friends with you opened my eyes. You were already a successful entrepreneur. You sold a company in the past. And I think our relationship and our friendship is really what opened my eyes to like actually digging deep. And I, you can probably even remember back in the days I was like working on all sorts of side projects. I was like, you were you introduced me to like the first engineer I've ever worked with. You know, I was tinkering on on all sorts of things, and it's amazing. You can you know fast forward like you know five years later, and it's actually took the plunge. You know, <laughs> left left the job, went all in on starting something. I, I used to enjoy on Friday nights, Mike and I before we'd go out, we would get drunk and then we would argue over all kinds of dumb stuff. Like, hey man, we think about this company, like it's trash. He'd be like, I think it's gonna be great. <laughs> And you win some, you lose some. And so we always laugh about it. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway from working at Facebook? Like, what do you think was the thing that uh, from working in, and maybe describe a little bit about like the role that you had inside the finance team. And like, what was the biggest learning? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I often think if I can go back to Facebook, what, what I would do differently sometimes. That's a question I always ask myself. Um, and I would have like networked aggressively. And I think when you're inside of those businesses and you have, a chance to work with so many smart people, so many dynamic people, knowing that I would have been an entrepreneur, I wish I would have just met as many people as possible instead of just going to the gym with you every single day. <laughs> uh, it's like it's an amazing place to go spend time and just learn the ropes and really network, you know, because I think you realize as you're building your companies, like being able to recruit great designers and great engineers, like all of that matters so much. But uh, to your question, like what did I learn the most? You know, I think what I learned was I wasn't a good fit for a big company, to be completely honest. Uh, I think when I was at Facebook, 
you know, I was responsible for building financial systems, FP&A systems, kind of the top down, more strategic models. We were building five and 10 year models to do, you know, data center planning and like really long term strategic planning. Um, and I think what I felt I needed was like I saw what those before before me at Facebook had built. And I was like, I want to go build, you know, and I think that was probably the biggest learning for me. I always tell people, yeah, I was at I was at Facebook for five quarters and people laugh. They're like, you're such a finance guy. You think about things in terms of quarters, you know, uh, and I was enough cycles for me to learn that, like, actually, I want to go build, you know, and so that's where I started looking earlier stage, not founding but you know going to like series c series d where it's kind of like at that stage where you need to build a lot of that early infrastructure um so that was yeah that was definitely my biggest my biggest learning all right and then at zenefits uh i always joke that you are my one friend who went from i got a new job to i'm running the place basically on the finance side (laughs) at zenefits and it happened in like a year i think or maybe a year and a half or whatever um what did you start at and then how did you get to well you're the vp of finance I think, right? You get VP of finance. And kind of yeah. talk through just like the building process and like what systems you guys had to build and like what you learned there. Yeah. I came in at IC, IC level. Uh, I think at the time there was really not a team being built yet. Um, IC, for those that are listening, is individual contributor. Individual contributor, yeah. And I think the, the, the there was really no foundation. I think, you know, our kind of uh, directive was go build up the finance, go find it, build the finance infrastructure, you know, and get this place ready to go public at some point. Uh, we need kind of to grow. I think at that point we were about 500 employees when I joined. Uh, by the end of that that first year, we were 1,800 employees. So it was like insane growth. I joined just before we closed the big 500 million Series C financing. Uh, and so that was fun to be a part of. I didn't lead the financing, but I was able to participate, help build the models, help prepare the presentations. Um, and I think, you know, early on, I brought just discipline to how we built our models, how we presented, how things were organized. Um, I think, you know, David Sachs, who uh, was CEO at the time, joked that like, my formatting on the models probably increased our valuation by like a billion dollars, just the cleanliness aspect of it. Uh, and that discipline extended into as we started to build. So I, like I said, I was so fortunate in my early days, my the first few years of my career to, you know, work with those big Fortune 100 businesses, understand organizationally how were they de- uh, set up? How, what are their processes? What technologies do they use? Uh, and so that I learned the playbook. And I think when I joined Zenefits, I quickly implemented that playbook to say, Here's what the modeling environment should look like. Here's what our team structure should look like. Here's the portfolio of services that we need to provide to our business partner. Here's kind of how all this should should orchestrate. And I think once you kind of lay down that foundation, uh, it really establishes yourself as a leader on the team. Um, and so I think that got me a promotion to director. There was a lot of change happening at Zenefits. Zenefits grew way too fast. Uh, we ran into some compliance issues. Uh, and then we had some tough decisions to, to make. Um, and I think one thing that you know about me is, you know, I think um, always, always okay to speak my mind, you know. And I think when times get tough, I think, you know, having somebody who, um, you know, is willing to make tough decisions that are the right decisions for the business becomes really important. Uh, and I think that kind of what earned me my seat to kind of take over take over more of the finance function and to participate in board meetings uh, and to help drive some of those decisions around restructuring, uh, which are really tough things to do. Um, but at that point, I mean, it, it's it saved the business for sure. Yeah. It feels like that's one of the stories of Silicon Valley of like, you get all of the experiences wrapped up in 12 to 18 months, right? Like, yeah. hey, it's a rocket ship. Hey, things are now kind of unsteady. Uh, we've got 
the compliance or, or kind of regulatory issues. We've got uh, change of leadership, like all these different things that we've got to restructure the business. Like you really get a lot of experience very, very quickly, uh, which if you're going there to learn is like actually the ideal kind of, uh, you know, path that, that the company goes through. Yep. Um, what was the biggest thing you took away? Like when it's all said and done, you walk away, right? You go start a business. But like when you think back, like what's the thing you learned? Uh, I, mean, I think it's business fundamentals matter, you know, and I, and it's, uh, yeah. It's really shocking, <laughs> shocking, <laughs> alert, alert, 2021, breaking news. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's crazy, right? Because you look at some business where the unit economics are upside, <laughs> unit economics are upside down and investors are still piling cash into these businesses. And the playbook has worked in some instances where it's like, even though the unit economics are upside down and unit economics being looking at for what's the unit of value that, you know, delivers, you know, uh, future value for this business. And so a lot of software businesses, it's like a license or a seat or a user, you know, or for Uber, it might be a rider or something along those lines. And so for every dollar that we earn from, you know, that unit, are we able to get $3 in the future? And a lot of times these businesses are like, actually, we're going to pay a dollar right now to get 80 cents in the future because we're going to go win market share and expect that that dollar will be worth $3. Yeah, we'll build future, future products or whatever. Exactly. And that exactly. 80 cents will then grow to 120 $153. Yeah. Right? And you have to be really, really careful about where you apply apply those principles. Uh, and I think, you know, Zenefits at one point had um, really strong unit economics in certain in certain areas in terms of uh, its ability to um, so Zenefits provided free HR software and then monetize as an insurance broker. Really disruptive model. You know, I think people, everybody needs HR software. As soon as you start a business, you need HR, HR software. And to get that software for free and then also have just, you know, somebody be your insurance broker and that, in, you know, and you can provide that free software in exchange and that, you know, broker commission that you're able to get. It's really valuable, you know. I gotta, I gotta admit something real quick. Uh, I wanted to test it out one time, so I went in and I put like, uh, you know, name, whatever. I don't know. I got like three clicks in the funnel, and I was like, oh, I don't got time for this. Like, I'll come back and check it out. Alex from Zenefits is still emailing me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know who Alex from Zenefits is. I don't even know if he's a real person, but still emailing me. I've unsubscribed, I've blocked, etc. But I'm still getting emails. So Zenefits definitely knew what they were doing. They That's were awesome. they, they, they were relentless. Keep up their relentlessness. <laughs> yeah, exactly what I was gonna say. <laughs> uh, when you decided to leave, did you know you wanted to go start a company? Uh, I did. I did. Yeah. Uh, and so I, yeah, when I decided to leave, it was on the, on the, on the, on the plan to go start a company up. All right. Why trace? And what, what the hell do you guys do? I think people see it and they're like, wow, these guys have like great investors and like they're smart, but like what is finance systems? Yeah. Yeah. Well, trace is the first service desk for finance teams. All right. What does that mean? We help people in a business purchase, hire, and manage their projects. Those are really the fundamental building blocks of any operating plan. It's what people do to you know, deploy and invest uh, their, their resources and their, and their capital. And most software businesses, I mean, 60 to 70% of their spend is on, is on hiring and headcount. And then they purchase things like software. Uh, you have professional services and contractors. Trace facilitates all of that work. Uh, and so it gives people a, a mechanism to go you know, get those things done. Um, and then it gives the finance team visibility into what these people are doing. Uh, and so the old world of this process is like, 
you know, you collect a request and you like stamp it for approved and like those people go get these th- those things done. What we do is we collect this great information. We automatically give finance teams forecasts. So going back to that, you know, example that we said, we need to give people real time visibility uh, into into how they're you know, business is going to perform into the future, we give that to people automatically. Uh, And so this is kind of like a paradigm shift. I think people always think about these old traditional financial models. We're kind of flipping that on its head and saying, you know, you need to collaborate with your business to collect these requests. Let's maximize the use of these requests and understand what what's committed. You know, what is my committed spend? What's my committed forecast? What's pending approval? What's been approved? And how does that impact my business? Uh, and that's powerful information set that like a finance teams to accurately, you know, manage the business. Uh, one of my friends, he's a he's a head of finance at like, you know, one of the top SaaS companies. He says it best and he's a big fan of basketball. He's like the current finance tool set is like a coach, you know, coaching a game and not being able to make any adjustments until the game is over. You know, he's like coaches have to be able to make adjustments in real time. And the way to do that is to collaborate with the business, understand the decisions that they're making, understanding how those decisions will impact the broader financial system, financial plan, and then make adjustments and tweak. Uh, and that's what Trace uh, allows people to do. All right, before we keep going, how do people go buy the software? Because if you run a business of what size, what's the ideal customer size? I think once you have around 100 or 150 employees, you typically start to have just enough distribution, enough people across the business where it starts to make t- starts to make sense. You have a finance team in place. Uh, we're still trying to figure out what the upper bound is. We just closed our first enterprise deal. Nice. Uh, nice. <laughs> sales. Yeah. It was a 1,500-person uh, business. There are going to be 2,000 employees by the end of the year. Uh, and so our, our, you know, our goal approach is like, let's focus on growth stage businesses now before they have all of this infrastructure. So like 100 to 1500. 100 to 1500 is a good kind of. All right. TraceHQ.com. TraceHQ.com. By the way, for those that don't know, if you talk to the sales team, Mike's brother, Matt, he runs a sales team, right? Runs a sales team, yeah. All right. Uh, He's an absolute animal. Uh, (laughs) He he will explain to you why uh, you're an idiot if you haven't been using the software. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, What's it like starting a company with your brother? Uh, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing and it's hard at the same time. I mean, I, I, I can't lie and say it's been like, you know, perfect at every yep. single step of the road. I think the CEO VP of sales is always an interesting relationship uh, as is. And then, you know, me and Matt, I mean, we are. <laughs> I've got I've got four brothers. You've got one. And yeah. we're all very similar. <laughs> all very similar. Yeah. Him and I are like so competitive. Uh, but at the same time, we have the same goal. We want the same things. Uh, it's honestly been one of the most rewarding things in, in my life. Me, me and Matt, I mean, we have a really special relationship as you know um he's my brother he's my best friend but i i love him like like a father you know and i want him to do well i always want him to succeed uh and so it's yeah i I think him and i being able to work towards the same thing it's it's incredible when i'm working weekends working nights i jump into slack it's like you know whose little bubble do i see there it's like it's matt you know it's like the guy is just he's just getting after it you know Uh, there's been tensions there's been hard times you know and i think I think there's like little brother, big brother things that happen, you know, and we always manage through those those things. And but actually, but isn't it fair to say that uh, actually you would have tension with like any executive team, right? Just naturally as you build a business and it's easier to resolve with your brother because you can just be honest. We can be honest. Yeah. But I think when uh, there's other executives, there's a level of professionalism for sure, you know, and like him and I, we keep it professional like all the time. But I think we also like, we also like let 
you know, things come out as well, like, and have a little bit more heated and heartfelt debates, you know? Yeah. And I think it's a superpower, you know, because when you, when you have that trust with somebody and you know that at the end of the day, they, at the end of the day, nothing else matters. You can make zero dollars. Like they just want you to be successful. And that's the root of the relationship. And it's Mm -hmm. like that family bond. You can get through anything, you know? Um, But, but you could like, another reason I know this is because I do with my brothers, like, yeah, yeah, you're a professional, whatever. And then there's one moment you're just like, dude, I will whoop your ass. <laughs> right. And the younger brother say the older brother, older brother say the younger brother, whatever. But like that eventually comes out. Yeah. And then everyone's like, all right, chill. And they're like, you want to go get some food? Right. And then like, and, it, and it's perfectly fine. And you pretend like it never happened. And it's weird to other people. Right. Yeah. But I think to like people who have brothers specifically, right. It's just like, that's like a natural thing. Yeah. And, and so it's, uh, it's unique. Uh, and as I've worked more with my brothers, like you realize like you're like exactly what you're saying. Like, yeah, I want them to be successful, but like, Hey man, don't forget like, you know, you're the little brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So all my little brothers and Matt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Matt's like, yeah, I'm the little brother, but I'm the bigger brother. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. My youngest brother's taller than me and he reminds me all the time. Um, all right. So with Trace, the whole idea here, I mean, it's like a no-brainer high-level uh, idea of just like, hey, we should make this more real-time. We should have more like almost like streaming information, right? Yep. If we have people who are making decisions and forecasts and they don't have information, then they can't be effective with it. If we can then build software to get them the information faster and in more real-time, they should be more effective, more efficient, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Okay, great. Makes sense. How do you build the product? Because part of this, I think, is like most people are, especially those that haven't built SaaS software, mm-hmm. uh, or I guess, you know, software as a service, uh, they're just not used to building for these big enterprises, right? They're they're used to thinking about like, oh, let's build a mobile app, or let's build a website, you know, something that it's more consumer facing. What changes in the product development cycle for you as you guys look to service, you know, really big customers that could pay you a lot of money, but also there could be five different types of customers within one single, you know, uh, customer base, right? Right, 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 right. Uh, yeah, it is tough. It, it's a balance. I think you need to start with like your insights or the problem that you that you want to solve. Uh, and I think we were very clear around kind of like, yeah, the insights and the trends that we wanted to tackle with initially thinking through the scope of what we wanted to build. Um, you know, I knew that we were, it was, I wanted to do something in the finance space and solve these specific problems around just collaborating with the business and collecting this information and just automating all these routine FP&A tasks. Um, so I've been there, I've done it, I've been in the seat. And so I think we, we kind of know, uh, you know, where we can provide value and really where we can differentiate from other players in the market. Uh, and then it's, it's just like, Tactically, okay, let's, you know, now we have like a big vision, you know, and we think there's a huge category to be defined here and to be captured here. How do we tactically go do that with like, you know, a few million bucks of a seed round and like, you know, a, a you know, handful of, of engineers. Uh, and that's where it gets a little bit more difficult to say, okay, where do we start? What's our entry point with customers? Um, and, you know, how do we, how do we navigate from there to then continue to unlock and build uh, towards the vision? Um, and so that. Uh, is a process of just talking with customers, understanding their needs, defining requirements. Uh, and when you're building for the enterprise, there's not a lot of shortcuts that you can take, you know, especially when you're dealing with financial software. Uh, the security of that information, the security of that data, working with the legacy like accounting systems that you have to integrate with to get data, uh, all of those are kind of just table stakes. You know, you have to do that. You have to do that really well. And increasingly with things like security, you know, you have to be like SOC 2 compliant and you need to make sure that you're protecting people's data. And so that's core infrastructure that we built in uh, fr- from the early days. So compared to like building a consumer company where you're just like, 
you're just throwing ideas out there and you're just trying to find a lightning strike. You know, with, with when you're building an enterprise company, you have to be really thoughtful about how you architect the system um, and, uh, you know, how you sequence things to deliver value to customers. I'm really fortunate to be working with an incredible co-founder and CTO. Uh, his name is Martin Destagnol. Uh, he sold his last company to Box, led product and engineering teams there for four years. Uh, serial entrepreneur, so I think he just understands how to build. But coming from Box, he understands you know the importance of synchronization. You know, and you know Box makes sure all your files are synchronized. <laughs> there's somebody coughing in the room. This is not allowed. When we're in person, there's no coughing allowed. All right, keep going. Sorry. Leave that in. Don't edit that out. <laughs> yeah. So Box, you know, he makes sure that everything was synchronized, you know, and it's the same thing when you're dealing with financial data across systems. You need to make sure everything is synced. And then you also need to make sure that those documents are secure, you know, and Box handles, you know, government documents for government agencies. And so that security aspect really came into play as well. Um, and so we were really able to think about, you know, things like, you know, users and permissions, what users have access to, what pieces of the different product, what can they see, what can they not see into the foundation early. Uh, and that's really going to be helpful as we continue to scale and service these bigger customers um, because we built the infrastructure anticipating, okay, we want to go serve big enterprises, you know, down the road. Uh, and so that's good that we have that, that infrastructure. When you think about what this will empower, right? So the software we're just going to say it works. We know that the customers are using it. How does it change a business, right? Like, like what is the outcome once they use it in terms of uh, somebody buys into the vision? They say, yes, I want the real time uh, information. Does it lead to more revenue? Does it lead to just better forecasting? Does it cut costs? Like, how, how do you think about the impact on an actual business? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'll, I'm going to Mike, start. all I do is ask great questions. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I'm excited for the questions at the end. Talk about aliens and stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think I'm going to start with like a few different areas of, of where we deliver and where we're going to create change. So first is just from like a cultural perspective. Um, and I think like Trace, it empowers people. It empowers people across the business to hire who they need to hire, purchase who they need to hire, uh, to manage their projects. And I think... I think finance is kind of shifting away from this old guard of like gatekeepers and, you know, people who just say no. And they're realizing the real way to lead and the real way to get results is by empowering people and holding them accountable and allowing them just to execute and move with speed. And I think that's kind of the first shift that, you know, finance will create in a business. It allows finance to be a collaborative partner to the rest of the business and an enabler of the rest of the business to allow people to move with speed. The downstream impacts of that is now we're giving all of our business partners a way to collaborate with us, to give us information, to get us in their minds of like, what are you thinking about doing? And all that information can then go be used to just supercharge existing financial systems and finance teams. And so it starts with you know, giving that real-time forecast to finance, which is like an insight that finance teams really haven't had before. You know, they're really in the dark without getting this information. Or if they want to go try to create this in the old world, 
it's you know takes weeks you know and at that point it's it's already too late it, it, i mean this sounds ridiculous and i can say this you can't but like it's basically dinosaur type approach to doing this right where it's like very static it's uh kind of top down centrally planned uh type environment to what you're talking about is basically where the world's going Absolutely. right it's just real time information that now i say okay we thought x was going to happen x didn't happen y happened if we take that input and we change it rather than wait till the end of the quarter to make any change we should probably change it on day 3 of the quarter so that the rest of the quarter isn't screwed up because one of the inputs we made into the model is wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's like a no brainer. <laughs> like actually coming from somebody not from the finance department, of these big organizations, you're like, well, you guys haven't been doing that. Yeah. Right. Like, it, like it's kind of crazy to think about just how, um, how hard it must be to do this job without real time information. Right. 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 Absolutely. Um, one of the pieces of the software that's really fascinating to me. And I actually, I should have said this in the beginning, I'm an investor. Uh, Mike was nice. He he's he's gonna try to make us all rich. So <laughs> he'll be much more richer than I am, but that's fine. Uh, uh, is collaboration in terms of uh, you guys start out collaboration pre-pandemic. So everyone's in the same office for the most part, right? And we're gonna use the software to help everyone kind of work together better. Yep. Pandemic happens, people literally scatter all over the world. And so like collaboration and collaboration software is more important than ever. Talk a little bit about just like what this does to the internal communications of teams as they start to, uh, to use the software. Yeah, I think, well, the first thing is, you know, kind of when the pandemic hit, every single finance team was put on tilt, you know, and then they were saying, okay, like, what if we have to cut expenses by 20%, 25%, what do we need to do, you know, and so using a tool like Trace to have the visibility into what's committed, what's not committed, when are our renewals, when can we get out of this contract, you know, when is this contract in, those are some of the questions that we allow people to answer so they can just sleep easy you know, at night, you know, knowing that they have all this information and they don't have to go dig through Google Drive or box folders, analyzing specific contracts, kind of enter information out. So we could have helped people really get started. And then from there, executing on new financial plans. At that time, as people were kind of just trying to figure out the new world, they were just like, okay, iterating, you know, scenario one, scenario two, scenario three. And then when you pick a scenario, you need to go, you know, execute that scenario. You need to, okay, socialize that and then collaborate with people. Uh, and collaborating on financial decisions and information is really, really difficult thing to do. I mean, I think there's just like a ton of, you know, information. There's a ton of documents that needs to be, you know, you need to have like both tools that allow you to collect this information, to collect these documents. But chatting then in Slack without the context of this information uh, is really difficult, a really difficult thing to do, you know? And, and, you know, even if it's just like, for an example, if I want to talk about a number in my financials, I might say it's at the intersection of this department, this account, you know, this location and this and this date, you know, just so we can make sure that we're talking about that same piece of data or information. And so Trace allows people to, you know, have productivity tools to get their jobs done, but then also collaborate with that information right there, you know? So if I, I want to ping somebody and say, hey, we got this renewal coming up, like, should we renegotiate? Should we go look for new vendors? Um, do we want to cancel this? All that can happen in the product. Uh, and having that collaboration in context uh, is, is really, really helpful, especially when you can't just go knock on somebody's desk and be like, hey, I need your help. You know, we want to make this change. Like, is it good to go? Uh, and so I think it's, it's, it's increasingly important to have good productivity tools with collaboration deeply ingrained uh, into the experience uh, while, while we're working remote. It almost feels like right now you guys are taking the data, you're saying, hey, we're going to help you do 
you know, more with this data in terms of real time and, and uh, streaming and all that. Yep. Then two, it's like, hey, we're going to help you communicate and collaborate around the data. And then eventually, if you can basically kind of almost like sync your hooks into an organization, right, to some degree of, okay, now we've got the data and we've got you collaborating here, you can build out all kinds of products in a product suite that just continue to solve problems for these finance teams. And in some way, it feels like maybe there's been more software built for the consumer, like finance, yeah. right, whether it's uh, taxes or, you know, P&Ls and stuff like that than it is for these like kind of growth stage, um, you know, technology companies. And if you can really just essentially establish that entire category and be the product leader there, then it's a no brainer, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We yeah, think that's that, why I invested. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we think there is a new category here. You know, I think there's like categories of financial planning systems. There's categories of accounting systems. And I think that there's, we think that there's this new category that's based around collaboration and workflows and analytics. Uh, and does it have a name? Do you guys have a name for it? We call the category finance service management. Uh, and service is a very key part of that category name because we think about the portfolio of services that finance needs to offer the business. The problem with the incumbent systems like the, the planning systems or the accounting systems is they're really built for finance. They're not built for the people in the business to collaborate with those tools and to use those and to use those tools. So the tool, the current tools are built specifically for finance teams to do finance activities Power better. user tools for finance. Yep. Exactly. And what you guys are saying is, no, we we need to give tools to the finance teams that help them work better with the product team or with the customer service team or whatever else. And so it's providing connectivity between the finance team and the rest of the organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man. We, we, we say that convince myself this is even better business than I thought. <laughs> Damn. All right. Yeah. We don't actually compare our category to, uh, you know, existing financial categories. We say it's most analogous to IT service management. So IT service management and finance service management. IT service management is companies like ServiceNow and Atlassian, and they built incredibly valuable businesses around a really simple concept of a ticket. You know, you need anything from IT, you go create that ticket. Uh, it was kind of like the core of, you know, what those systems started as. And that doesn't really exist in finance. And interestingly, a lot of people use Atlassian's Jira product for some of these workflows, you know, where it's like, I need a workflow ticketing system for purchase requests or hiring requests. And so they end up using generic workflows, but they're not built for it. You're not built to understand your financial data, you know, to do all of the connections with your financial systems and give you all the outputs that Trace is going to be doing. Um, but so from an, from like a, from an analogy perspective, we're most similar to those businesses. And I mean, you know, ServiceNow is a $100 billion business, Atlassian, $50 billion business, two of the top 10 enterprise cloud software companies. Um, so we think there's huge category upside to the to the to finance service management. All right. So you've raised a good amount of money for early stage technology company. Uh, walk through what that experience has been like and kind of what are some of the tips and tricks that you picked up as you went through the fundraising process? So if there's a founder out there who's like, hey, I'm about to go raise capital, like what are the things that you found that worked for you? Um, I think that's, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I told you only great questions. <laughs> Uh, I think people say that's a great question when they're trying to like buy themselves some time. I, I know. I, I'm not going to call anybody on it. I've called, on people, I've called people out on it before, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were fortunate to have a great early investor, Jeff Clavier on Core Capital. Um, he calls, he's, you know, the OG of seed investing. He's been doing it for a really, a really long time. Um, it wasn't early. It wasn't easy for us, you know, to get started on the kind of the fundraising trail. Uh, and so first piece of advice is I think people give this advice all the time is test your pitch with friends and like, you know, you know, people who you can really trust and dial that pitch in before you go kind of talk to your ideal, you know, investors. 
Um, so it's basically start with the people who not necessarily you don't want, but start with people who either aren't actually investors, but can give you feedback. They may be, uh, people in the industry or, or people that you trust and know, and yeah. then almost move in and go pitch the people who like they're nice to haves first and then work your way up to the people that actually you want. I think that's a good idea. I think you'll, you'll have a good feeling when that pitch is kind of dialed in and your story is really dialed in and it takes some time to kind of iterate on, on that. Uh, I think we met Jeff. Uh, at a good time. I think he was a believer in the category, believer in the potential, and really a believer uh, in the team. Uh, and so we initially raised uh, a $3 million kind of seed financing. Uh, and that allowed us to go build our early team, develop these kind of proof points. Uh, we brought in some institutional investors into that round. Uh, and so we brought in Redpoint, Greylock, and NICA, uh, all in about equal amounts. And they're typically a little bit later stage investors. And so I think there's always a, cl- a question that uh, an entrepreneur needs, needs to ask themselves. It's, you know, if you're going to bring in a later stage investor, that brings signaling risk at the early stages. So if they invest early on, they decide not to do subsequent financing, that can be bad signal to other investors in the market. At the same time, you get their brand, you get their power uh, behind you early on. Uh, and so we made the decision that instead of bringing in like two big institutional seeds, Uncork Capital is just primarily a seed investor, you know, and Jeff will say his job is to go, you know, help us get that series Series A done. He's not going to lead the lead the Series A. We made the decision to bring on those, uh, you know, bigger investors. And for us, it worked out to be a great, a great decision. Uh, we were, we had, are fortunate to be working with Sarah Guao at Greylock. She's been an incredible partner from the very beginning. Wow. I think She's, she deeply understands our market and what we aspire to do. I think she's a true believer in the category and the potential. Uh, and she's done the work to speak with CFOs in her network. Um, you know, they introduce us to customers that we can go chat with even early on before we were at the stage of our product being ready to sell. You know, she would sit in on the demos and actually do the work, you know. And, you know, it's, 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 it's rare to have a partner that's going to like, you know, of course, open up the Rolodex, introduce you to folks, but then actually go and sit in the meeting and see how it goes and get that feedback, you know? So even in the early days when we're still developing our product, you know, you can see how, you know, finance people respond to it, like kind of like you respond. It's like, yes, we need this. It's like, why has this not been done before, you know? And you can you can develop that conviction over time. Uh, and so then when we see opportunities to raise more money, move faster, you know, we want to increase and accelerate on the, pro- on, on the product roadmap. Uh, we've had supportive investors, and Greylock has continued to invest uh, in us, uh, which is which has been fantastic. It's been allowed us to, you know, hire our first founding lead designer. Uh, we're currently hiring for engineers. Um, so if you're an engineer looking for a job, come talk to Trace or go to go to Pomp's Crypto Jobs, <laughs> <laughs> depending on depending on what, what what type of you know sector industry you want to work in. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. Before, all right. So if you're an engineer, you should go talk to Trace. I'm super impressed by Sarah going to the actual meetings. Yes. She's that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, she's uh, she's Man. a great, she's a great partner. She she's when her and I meet, I I, I say I enjoy the meetings because I always learn something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, that's of course, you know, you love to chat with people that you always get to learn learn mm-hmm. stuff from, and you can actually have a good sparring partner when they understand and they've done the homework. Uh, so I think it's pretty I think it's pretty rare to have found that. Any other investors or advisors that have like stuck out in terms of uh, either over delivering or like you're like, hey, look, like they're super valuable that uh, doing something that people normally wouldn't do. Yeah, a couple of people come to mind. I mean, you're 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 the one of the. No, first no, you can't. No, no, come you're on. You're one of the first person that come to mind because I mean, I think yeah, I think we were fortunate to have you, and I think you came in. It's not like you know, you write you write big checks for big companies. You do big deals and big rounds. Yeah, and- big deals. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. Man, I'm gonna cut that. That's gonna go somewhere. I don't know where we're gonna put that, but that was a great fucking clip. But, but the beauty of it is, is like you know, you have a small check in trays, but every single time, I, and obviously we're friends, so it's a little bit different. But every single time I call you, it's like you know, I, I have somebody that I can get feedback from. Yep. Good, good feedback. So I always appreciated that. Um, somebody else who comes to mind, uh, a couple of people come to mind. Um, uh, Charlie Kievers, he's the CFO at Carta. He's an investor in us. Um, and, it, you know, it was in our early deal. We didn't have a lot of allocation to share. So it's not like a, a big check, um, but always supportive. I mean, whenever we want to meet, he gives us his time. Whenever we have resources, like he shares resources, he's always willing to make introductions. Uh, and there's a handful of people like like that that are just like the true believers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, so so fortunate for for all of them. I can I can go on and on. With, it, with well, it, what's fascinating to me is just uh, the common thread through a lot of that. I think it's like time. Time, right. And, and if you think about it from uh, um, all these kind of solo capitalists or people who are writing angel checks, et cetera, uh, we've got a couple of companies that I've put you know pretty big checks into. And then there's like 20 checks that are literally like a thousand bucks, 2,500 bucks, 5,000 bucks, whatever. Yeah. Um, and now founders are starting to use like angels has a new product where basically you can kind of pool a bunch of really small checks. It's one line item on your cap table. So maybe you want people with big audience or people who are an expert in a specific space or whatever. And, uh, what's fascinating to me is if you go talk to the founders, they're like, Oh, those people are way more helpful. Right. Like, you know, maybe I've got like one big investor who's really helpful or has opened up the Rolodex, kind of like what Sarah, it sounds like, has done has done for you and, and, and Jeff as well. Yep. Uh, but then there's like, oh, this person who's like actually really, really valuable to me doesn't even have that big of an economic stake, but like yep. they're always there. I know I can call them whatever. And to me, I think that's the argument for like why people should do more angel investing. Right. Is because you forget that uh, that person's actually getting value out of it as well. Yep. Right. Like there's probably very few people who wrote a small check who are like, oh, it's going to be life changing. It's more so they're either learning, they enjoy it, they want to help people like like there's some other non-economic benefit to them for doing it. Yep. And so it's it's fascinating to hear that, like the time investment, the the access is is uh, almost more important than the money. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a rise of the operator investor right now. And I think increasingly we're seeing a lot of great operators who are, you know, C-level, VP level starting to write checks. Um, and, and I think entrepreneurs are learning that those are some of the best people to have on your cap table. Uh, in our most recent financing, we brought in a syndicate from Fog Ventures. Uh, it's Operators Guild is the network. And it's like 500, you know, operators who are VP, COO, CFO type folks. And we were able to bring together a great syndicate uh, of, I think we have like 40 different, you know, VP, CFO level folks. Um, And, you know, I think it's early in terms of like our relationship with them, but we're already getting so much from them and so much from that network. Uh, I think increasingly entrepreneurs are going to want those types of folks on their cap tables who can really, really help. For sure. All right. Before I let you go, I want to talk about investing in general. have you done anything in crypto? I no. have, I own, yeah. I okay. own crypto. I own Bitcoin. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, let's go I, back. Let's go back to, yeah, time at Facebook. I think it was like, what, 2014? We were, I know this, you weren't like huge into crypto yep. at the time, um, but you, you, we were talking about it. We were on the shuttle, you know, there's probably like a Giants game, so we're like sitting, waiting, you know, <laughs> 45 minutes, just sitting on the shuttle trying to pass time. Uh, and we were talking about buying crypto and buying Bitcoin. And I'm, I started doing my homework, you know, and then one day I'm like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, buy some just tiny allocation. Uh, so we're on the shuttle. I got my Wi Fi going. I like, go to Coinbase and I'm like filling it out. And then they, they asked me for my license and I'm just like, all right, that's 
that that's where things stop. You know? <laughs> now you I'm don't not, need that. You I'm don't need that. my license on this website. Yeah. And so looking back, that was a little bit, little bit of a bummer. I wish I would have done that. But I think I've, I've gotten it. Honestly, I think your conviction in it and your conviction along the way is like, done, uh, I've done my research and like, I've come to believe that like, you know, this should be an allocation uh, in anybody's portfolio. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm more of a, you're uh, not a 95% guy. I stick to my finance principles, (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time, it's like, let your winners ride, you know? You know, when you were debating with Jason uh, Calcanis about this, it's like, well, Jason Calcanis got a Fiat haircut. I love Jason to death, but he's got a Fiat haircut. (laughs) Just so we're all clear for anyone who's been watching this podcast or watching Andrew Schultz podcast, Jason is the one who started the Fiat haircut whole situation. I love you, Jason. You didn't see me in Miami. So you're going to get that right there on the chin but I still love you. Uh, that's the whole thing. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it, let your winners ride, you know, and I think that's something that he believes. And so if, if, you know, Uber ends up becoming 95% of your portfolio, I mean, like you, you gotta, you gotta let your winners ride. What else are you invested in? Like not dollar amounts, but just like from a percentage basis, just ballpark. Uh, is it mostly equities? Is it like others? Like, how do you think about in today's world, uh, creating a portfolio? Like, like, how do you think through that? I think you need. It depends on your time horizon. Uh, it depends on your risk profile. Um, I'm, you know, a big believer in the enterprise software mm-hmm. asset class, uh, and I think, that, you know, of course, I'm building Trace, and so a lot of my eggs are in the Trace basket. Um, but I really believe in just the opportunity in just cloud cloud software, mm-hmm. uh, and I think what we've seen is like in that in that asset class. I mean, we can talk about you know Bitcoin now being a trillion dollars. The enterprise enterprise cloud or cloud, you know, asset class is a $2 trillion asset class. And the top five companies in that top five are a trillion dollars. So you can compare those top five to, you know, to Bitcoin uh, and see like, how do those two things stack up? I would say that it makes sense for people to have good exposure to the cloud, the cloud category. And when you, when you look at the cloud, it was, you know, roughly 600 billion uh, a couple of years ago, you know, and now it's two trillion. It's it's coming back a little bit as interest rates are are going up and multiples contract a bit. Um, but I think there's still just so much upside, uh, and I think you're seeing that uh, in in the markets, you know. And I think you're seeing some of these public guys uh, come downstream and get deeper and deeper, you know, and go more and more upstream. And that capital is kind of continuing to flood up into into startups. And I think there's just a huge opportunity and. Those numbers I just gave were for publicly traded companies. When you think, when you look at private unicorns, companies valued over a billion dollars, uh, that represents there's like over five five hundred unicorn, yeah, unicorns, and that represents another two trillion in uh, in value as well. So just those four really, trillion total, really big numbers, yeah. And those are four unicorns. So there's even more at the earlier stages. Uh, and you, we, we talk about asymmetric bets and how Bitcoin was, you know, one of the one of if not the greatest asymmetric bet, you know. Of all time, I think you're still seeing that in early stage businesses in the cloud software, cloud software category. I mean, I talk about it all the time, right? Like uh, from a professional standpoint, uh, a little bit different personally, but professionally, uh, when I think about allocating capital, if you invested in Coinbase's seed round or Series A or bought Bitcoin on the same day, Coinbase's equity actually outperformed Bitcoin. Right yep. now, maybe at some point in the future, that doesn't end up being true forever or whatever. But like up until now, that's true. Yep. There's a lot of businesses that are very similar to that, right? BlockFi, Gemini, Kraken, like all, all these different companies. Yep. And so I think that 
it's less about like equity versus like crypto assets, right? Or these like liquid tokens. Yeah. And it's more so about like sector bets, right? And, and if you think about it, probably the two best sectors in the world to have bet on over the last five years, it's like cloud software and crypto, yeah. right? And maybe there's one or two others you could throw in there, but like those are basically the future, right? In terms of the way that people are going to get software delivered, they're going to pay for it, et cetera, and all the cloud stuff. Yep. And then two is like this whole reworking of a financial system. Yeah. Like outside of those two things, you'd be hard pressed to find two other sectors that you'd want to go bet so heavily on. Yeah, so I think yeah. it's more, it's less about like uh, they're competitive and it's more so just like, I don't know, there'd be like five sectors that, you know, in hindsight, people look at and be like, oh, if you were along those sectors, you could have been an idiot and make money. Absolutely. Right. And yeah. like cloud software is definitely one of the five. Absolutely. Yeah. Just go long technology. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, we, we could talk about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's uh, recent comments because I think both you and I uh, respect them very deeply, like Absolutely. from a, uh, just this historic run, but like they don't understand technology at all. Right. Right. And like, it's pretty crazy to uh, hear the like flippant conversations and, uh, um, and the responses to like all these questions. And to me, it's like very weird because uh, I think we know that like athletes are a great example, right? Athletes like go through this process of they get better, they improve, they get better. At some point they peak. Yep. If they're a professional athlete, hopefully it's when they're a professional and then there's kind of this like decline. And if you're really, really good, like maybe a Tom Brady who, you know, he's 0-2 in the Super Bowl against Eli Manning. Uh, (laughs) He's been able to stay around for a really long time. He plays into his 40s, right? And like that peaking, where did he peak? Did he already peak? Is he got the future to peak? Like nobody knows, but eventually like he'll decline. He'll have to retire. Uh, In business, you obviously have a lot more longevity, right? But like at some point, like, yeah, there is a decline. Yep. And so is it 60s, 70s, 80s? Like by 90, you've probably, you know, on the way down, which again, doesn't take away. Like if you were so much better than everybody else, like you could have declined 50% in your skills and evaluations, uh, abilities, et cetera, and still be better than everybody. Right. Right. But it just feels like there's an entire generation of people who like completely miss cloud. They completely miss crypto. Yep. And I still think through, is it an age and like a demographic thing? Is it a just experience thing? Like if you don't grow up with a super phone in your uh, hand, do you actually end up just not understanding the importance of cloud computing? I, I don't know, but it feels like even when you listen to earnings calls and stuff, like there's a lot of people who still are like, ah, I don't know. And you're like, dude, what? Like you don't believe in cloud computing or like that's not like a material thing for you moving forward. And so, I I mean, you know this stuff better than I, but it just seems kind of crazy that there's still people who, uh, maybe maybe they don't not believe, but they just are uh, less convinced that that should be like a big part of their portfolio. Yeah, it it is interesting. And I think there's like some strategy aspects to this as well, where it's like, all I want to do is compound my money at like 8%, you know? And if, I mean, 8%? <laughs> Damn, all right. We're going to have to talk about this crypto stuff when we get done. 8%? Bitcoin goes up and down 8% in a day. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about some of these old school, you know, money managers where it's like, oh, if, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm at 8%, I'm doing my job, you know? Yeah. And I only want to take on enough risk. I don't want to take on, you know, any risk. I just want to compound at 8%. And I will do that for the next century, you know? And I think, and that, it's a smart way to play it, right? Because if you just look at compounding and being in the market, uh, you know, I think this is the stuff that we need to start teaching our kids. It's like the basics of, you know, compounding and financial literacy, but those mental models around how you can get that 8% and what that looks like is changing, you know, and Amazon is the prime example of this. How many people missed Amazon because Amazon wasn't generating cash and, and, you know, Amazon was just piling cash into new, new, just driving it, investing it right back into the business. And that's the same thing with a lot of these 
cloud cloud software businesses that are you know running on subscriptions and AR, ARR models where they're not getting every single piece of cash up front. And I think these businesses have to they're investing a dollar because they're going to get three dollars you know over some over some time horizon. And so early on, these businesses are like, oh, they're not generating cash or they're not generating earnings. Uh, but if you understand how the model works from a subscription and this like lifetime value of every single customer that you get has a lifetime value assigned to it, you know? And so I will invest a dollar, you know, if my lifetime value is gonna give me $3 over time. And it takes time for that to play out. And I think now that people are starting to see uh, that, you know, these businesses actually can print cash. It was hard to see that early on. And so uh, I think, you know, um, Berkshire has invested, you know, in, you know, some of the high flying companies now, I think Snowflake, they were they were in and I think Snowflake trades at the highest multiple like in enterprise software right now. So I think that one's probably like Warren's probably sweating. <laughs> He's like, I, I know he didn't make that decision. Somebody on his team did. But it's cool to see them finally starting to understand like how these business models work and how they can print cash over time. The top five enterprise or top five cloud software businesses are going to do 100 billion in revenue next year they're going to print 20 billion in cash uh, and so these businesses can just you know once the machine is working and at scale um, deliver incredible returns for investors and I think that's why investors assign you know I think the the category trades at 20x you know revenue and I think it's because people can anticipate what those revenue streams and that growth will will look like uh, into the future with with a relative high degree of accuracy um, so yeah investors love those businesses and and it feels like uh, they're really sticky too, right? Like once somebody starts using the software, I mean, you really got to screw up to uh, to get somebody to leave. And yep. so when you start looking at the retention, uh, it's like, whoa, this is not only a great business to begin with; it's also then you got the customer for you know years. What better business than that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's like a lot of these businesses, it's not just retention where it's like. We kept every single customer. We got 100% retention. A lot of time, those contracts will increase, you know? And so then you can say my dollar retention, if this was a this was a $10 contract, this year it's a $130 contract. Now my retention rate is 130%. And when you start modeling that out, where my customer base as a whole is going to be, you know, say it's dollar retention, 120%, 130%. You, now you're getting a compounding rate on just your existing revenue base, not to mention what you're bringing in net new. And so that, you know, is a compounding factor. You, of course, you can discount it. But, you know, once you start getting into modeling what these businesses will look like with that high retention rate, you know, you're not even looking at maybe an annuity stream that it looks like with some, you know, end in sight. Now it's looking like a perpetuity of the way you model it and you discount it. Um, and so they, there's just so much value to extract from when those business models are working. And the software to your point is incredibly sticky you know a system like trace integrates with your accounting system all your all the people in the business are using it um, they're not getting rid of you it once you're in they're not getting rid of you but it's not because you like came up with some trick it's because it actually works it provides right? value they, we solve yeah. problems we deliver value absolutely like they they need to use the software in order to run their business better which mm -hmm. is like the crazy thing is uh how do you build a great business just solve people's problems absolutely yeah right yeah all right i could talk to you all day uh <laughs> Uh, my notes, I didn't use them one time, so I'm going back to no notes. Fuck the notes. Um, three questions. One, what's the most important book you've ever read? Most important book I ever read. Um, I would say the, the most important book um, to me right now is called Survival to Thrival, How to Build an Enterprise, how to build an enterprise Startup. All right. Um, and survival to what? Survival to Thrival. 
thrival. Right? Yeah. And it's a book that was Is that written, a word? Survival to thrival. Yeah. yeah. Um and uh, it was a book written by entrepreneurs uh, who built, you know, cloud software, enterprise software. Uh, and it's been awesome for the journey. And I, we give it to every single employee who starts at Trace um, because it start, talks about the early stages of founding, finding product market fit, finding go to market fit. You know, and I can say as we've been on this journey with Trace, I felt like I'd be like, OK, we're on page 38. We're going to page 39, you know, and, it, and it's really nice to, you know, that people have been like sharing this information. Um, and so for anybody who's out there that's like thinking about starting a business, uh, you know, you can do it, you know, have the courage. You know, there's so much information out there. Uh, there's no limiting beliefs. It's like you can go do whatever you want. Uh, Facts. <laughs> Facts. And it's, it's probably the thing that you and I agree on the most out of anything in the world is like there's an entire group of people who literally think the world's like, I don't know, conspiring against them. Yeah. And then there's a group of people who are just like, dude, I'm going to go do what I want to do because I can. Yeah. Right. And it's like if I want to be uh, you know, successful entrepreneur, I can go do that. If I want to learn investing, I can go do that. If I literally want to go be a piano player, like I can go figure out how to do that. But it's this like a uh, self-starter mentality, right? Absolutely. And this like, uh, um, as I'm fond of tweeting, like no one's coming to save you. Yeah. Like like it is on you. And I think that that's kind of the way that you guys have built Trace and, and really just live your life, right? 100%. And if there's one thing that I can, that I aspire to do as I, you know, build trace and have more success is for like kids who grew up in, you know, rough areas or rough neighborhoods, you know, like, like we did who they don't know these things. Right. And they think that like their world is constrained to this box and it's only this box that they know there is literally no box. There is, literally you have the internet, <laughs> no constraints. Like you can literally go do what, do what you want, you know, and just dream big, aspire big and just work, you know, work Facts. relentlessly and don't stop. Sleep schedule, eight sleep. Uh, for those that don't know, I've been asking this question for eight sleep for a while now. I'm an investor in the company because literally it changed my life. Nice. Uh, my brother and I have a competition as to who can sell more eight sleeps. Uh, he beat me last month for the first time ever, which is crazy. I think that he conspired with Mateo, the CEO. Uh, <laughs> I know that you're really into health and fitness. Uh, just look at him. He literally works out every day. I can still beat him at basketball, though. Uh, <laughs> facts. So let, let's talk about uh, sleep. I have, a, I, I have a question. I have a question. <laughs> this is going to be a great question. What's the worst you've been beat in a game of one-on-one -on -one basketball? I don't think I've ever lost. <laughs> I can't think of a single time I've ever lost a game of basketball. If it happened, I don't remember it. <laughs> all right, all right. Why? Go ahead. Tell your story. We were playing – so. 4.30 a.m. shuttle, we get to Facebook, 5.36, something like that. And I think we decided not to lift that day. Right. We go play basketball or we're okay. playing one-on-one. -on -one. I think you beat me the first game. And I think we ended up- Well, playing. I should have stopped there. That, <laughs> that sounds like the lesson of this story, but go and ahead. I think it was like, okay, so then I won like the next two. I think it was like our fourth game that we're playing. We're playing games to 11, ones and twos. Yep. And I just got on like the hottest hot streak I do of remember my this. life. I'm not going to admit I remember it, but I remember it. I was banking in threes from like, from the- <laughs> Not even from half core. Like I think he was on the other end of the court and he was literally like throwing it underhand. It was just going in. I was like, this is absurd. I think I made six straight shots and it was just like 11-0 game over. <laughs> that, that did happen. I, I, I hate to admit it, but that did happen. That's actually the only time I ever remember losing. The yeah. other two that you said, I don't remember this. Yeah. It's uh, funny because uh, if, if like that happened with me and Matt, my brother, he would just like, it would just be completely out of his mind. He would not, not remember. He's like, like that, Mike? That, that never Mike happened. isn't even good at basketball. <laughs> I literally beat Mike every time I play him. <laughs> All right. Sleep schedule. What, uh, what was it like? And then how has that changed over the pandemic? 
I used to be uh yeah, I used to be a, you know, sleep sleep when I die guy, you know, like let me sleep like five hours a night. And especially when I was like, you know, at Zenefits and I was really dialed in into just career success and making an impact. Um and then I think I've always just been big into studying and research, especially like around my body, working out like what feels good. Uh, and I've really come around to the idea of just you need to get you need to get more sleep. Uh, and so I would love to get eight hours every night. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big believer in Whoop, and I think the Whoop you band. Like I've been using it for two years. Yeah, uh, I wish I was an investor. Well, in what does it tell you that like you actively use? Because I I think like Whoop, Apple Watch, like they all tell kind of different metrics. What's the thing like when you wake up and you look at the metrics? Like what's the thing you look at? Uh, so I look at, when I wake up, I look at sleep. It's like the, literally the first thing I do. Okay. I, I, like how many hours I got, how many hours of sleep that I got, it gives you a recovery score. So it looks at your heart rate variability. And I think eight sleep tracks heart rate variability uh, as well. I didn't know what this was until like a year ago. And yeah. HRV is like the most important thing that all these people tell me they look at. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, whoop gives that to you in a score. So then it tells you like, okay, you worked at this hard yesterday. Here's what your sleep recovery was. And so, you know, here's your recovery rate and you want to be like yellow, green. You don't want to be uh, in, in the red. And so I look at that. I look at my resting heart rate. Um, and I think- what, what, are you, what are you putting up resting heart rate? I'm like in the high 30s. Um, so what? I'm somewhere like around- Dude, wait, <laughs> whoa, 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 what? My yeah, resting heart rate is like, recently it's been around 38 to 40. Interesting. Bro, are you alive? <laughs> 38 to 40 yeah, is your resting heart yeah. rate? I thought mine was low. I'm at 50. Yeah. Matt, Matt, my brother, he's at he's at 35. <laughs> which is like Does his heart not work? Which what? is like Lance Armstrong type, you know. Resting Wait, 38 to 40 is your resting heart rate. Yep. Dang. Man, I was flexing on people with 50 because my brother's at 53, and I was like, Joe, you're not even that healthy. <laughs> you should 38 a, to 40. You should get a whoop. You yeah, know. maybe maybe it's the Apple Watch is <laughs> bad data. All right, all right, all right. That, that must be what it is. I got to get a whoop, and then I'll have 38. Well, all it's right. fun because like, – Actually, I'll have 37. Yeah, me <laughs> – by that time, I'll be at 35. <laughs> but what I love about it is, like, you can have a team, you know? And yeah, so yeah. it's, like, me, my brother, and my dad's in it, you know? And so, like, every single day – look at everybody's. We can see – activity like how hard you worked out you know you can see you can see your recovery you can see your hours of sleep um and so yeah it's great i also look at like calories burned and so every single day it's like okay how many calories did i burn how many calories can i assume and mm -hmm. so then you can kind of play around with it you know in terms of like do i want to you know gain or do i want to lose a little bit of weight so it's awesome to have this level of insight you know yeah. uh, one of the first times i remember going to the gym with you uh was in san francisco i think we went to a crunch gym shout out crunch uh and I think that we went there. I'm pretty sure that we were trying to see who could bench more. Uh, but towards like the middle of the workout, I was like, yo, you want to go for a run? I remember you just looked at me and go, I don't run. <laughs> I remember being like, okay. <laughs> They're like, damn, all right. And then you were like, the most cardio I do is I like go on the stair stepper thing, like the, you know, the stairs that rotate. And I remember being like, Damn man, he he's on a different world. <laughs> <laughs> but you had you you always had that football player strength, you know. Yeah. Like I would be doing workouts and we put two twenty five, you know, and like we would we'd go for twelve or something like that, you know. And then you would you know you would probably like start dying down, you know. You'd do like eight, and then we'd keep going up, and then we'd get, be at like three fifteen or three thirty five, and I'm like done, I'm gassed, and you're just like 
I'm like, what the, just where did that come from? Just one or two. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's, you ain't got, well, when you got to do it 12 times? Like, if, you're, if your life matters, then you just got to do it once, you know, yeah. just push somebody away, whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> just, I'm not into doing it a bunch of times. Just, you know, just say, yeah, I could do that one time. <laughs> my, my brothers give me a hard time because uh, they, they're all weaker. Every single one of my brothers is weaker than me. Just put that on the record. Uh, but <laughs> when we go to the gym, they're like, dude, you work out to the gym and you work out for 25 minutes. I'm like, yeah, I don't got time to be like sitting around playing. They've like got music. They do this. That. I'm just like in and out. And so uh, literally now the joke is like when we go, the second we walk in, like you done already? <laughs> like, All right, whatever. All right. Third question that you could ask me one is uh, aliens. Are you a believer? I am. Uh, oh, my God. Don't tell me no. I am. I'm like, I don't I'm not informed, but I see enough where I just don't know, you know, and I'm not going to do the homework to like figure out <laughs> if there if there's aliens or not. You know, um, do you likely, think that there's a higher probability or lower probability? I think that there's probably something out there. There's probably aliens yeah. out there. Right. And I think like, yeah, I think, and it depends on your definition of alien. Yeah. Right. It's like there's probably not little green men, but there's probably like life, whatever. Yeah. If aliens, if aliens were real and they did come, like we would probably be friends with them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I tell Plin all the time that, like, she's like, "What would you do if an alien showed up?" I'm like, "Go to the bar and get a beer." Hey, man, aliens, <laughs> what's up, man? <laughs> you want to go back to my country? <laughs> sure, I think it's on another planet, though. <laughs> uh, I, would you rather go spend a year on the International Space Station, go underneath the water to the depths of the ocean for a year? Or go to Mars and not be able to come back. If you had to pick one of the three, this is my uh, new, this is my new thing to ask people. I'm picking none of the above. I, <laughs> I would like to stay in my condo with my laptop. <laughs> uh, the, I'm more scared of the ocean than I am of space. Uh, why do you say that? I guess like if in either situation, if anything happens, like you're dead. Yeah. But like, there's just something about like being underwater at the depths of the ocean and being like, yo. I can't get out. Like, I, I don't know. It just freaks me out. Like space kind of feels like, you know, we're floating out here and chilling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, would you, uh, would you, would you go to space? If I could come back. But like I asked uh, my youngest brother, John, the other day, I said, Hey, if, would you go to Mars if you couldn't come back? And he actually had a great response. He goes, well, what's there? Like, am I going to hang out with people? Am I going alone? Yeah. Right. So it's kind of like, uh, if you knew that it was like a better, like what if I told you Mars was better than earth? Then okay. Like maybe, right. Let's go check it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not going to go first. Uh, I, I do appreciate, though, that everyone got mad at Elon Musk because he said he was going to create the laws on Mars. Yeah. And uh, he was like, they were asking him, like, what are the laws going to be? He's like, we'll figure it out when we get there. And they were like, you can't do that. <laughs> and he was like, okay, well, you go and figure it out then. And everyone gets real quiet, right? So it's like, uh, we just don't know. Yeah. Like, I think that's what's so much fun to talk about, right? It's like, how long would it take to get there? You read, they're like, oh, they created oxygen on Mars. Like, wait what like okay then yeah. they're like oh we found this like ice well that sounds like we got oxygen and water so like that sounds like we might really pull this thing off and it's like in 50 years are there gonna be people on mars like probably probably they just flew a helicopter yeah. right like sure and it was a little you know robotic one whatever but like dude imagine 20 years ago telling people we're gonna fly a helicopter on mars they'd be like you guys are crazy <laughs> yeah so. I, I I still got some exploring in Miami to do, so I'm good. <laughs> There's enough city here for me to go explore. <laughs> you could ask me one question. What do you have? Um, well, I guess first I would say that like um, 
I think this is awesome. I think the platform that you built is awesome. I think it's awesome to see you on CNBC. As somebody who's known you for a while, like seeing you on CNBC, I'm like, man, that is awesome. Like that is super cool. It's so, pretty ridiculous. Yeah. As a friend, I'm happy for you. I'm proud of you. Um, I think what was interesting to see is like, you've been such a believer in this for so long. Uh, and to see like when Bitcoin crashed to like three, four K and like held your conviction and held, held your belief. Uh, and knowing some people who are like, not maybe not friends, but acquaintances like, attack you on Twitter, call you a grifter, like all this stuff. Like, I don't think people understand like how disciplined you are, how hard you work. And like, you know, that like, this is not just some like overnight success. It's actually years, you know, decades of like hard work and dedication. Uh, and so what would you say to the haters? <laughs> <laughs> Other than buy Bitcoin, what, what, what do you want to tell those folks now that we've like 15 to 20 X from that, from that law? I mean, to be honest, like, I just kind of feel bad. Like, people always ask me, like, what's the most fun part about Bitcoin? And, like, look, the memes are awesome. Uh, the dancing on graves on the internet is hysterical, right? Like, I enjoy it just as much as anybody. No, 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 no. The best the best meme is, this, is like, the Snoop Dogg where you get the hat and you get the little, <laughs> you get the cigarette. That's literally the Thug best. life. That's literally the thug life meme is literally I, the best meme. Honestly, when I saw that, I'm like, all right, Pops made it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember who made the very first one, but when I saw that, I literally was like, this is... I may put this on like a TV on my <laughs> on my tombstone when I die, just so you guys all know. Um, no, I I think that uh, the part that I enjoy the most about all of this is uh, I got a message uh, the other day. Actually, hold on, I'm gonna read this out because I don't want to mess it up. But I get these messages like this probably on a uh, daily basis, if not daily, then I get them for sure weekly. And this one specifically uh, was interesting. Because, hold on, where is this? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many people out there who uh, probably just appreciate the dedication to it. So this is a person who, I, I don't want to show, so I'll just show you. Yep. But basically, they've messaged me a lot. Yep. And the last time they messaged me was back in March. Uh, and they were like joking around, all this stuff. Yesterday at 7.18 a.m., they said, today is my first day of my retirement. Thank you, Pomp, for helping me see the light. Best regards. Then they put their name. Yeah. And I like get those messages. And I have no clue who this person is. Uh, literally, it's a pseudonymous uh, account. And I have no clue what they did to get to this point. So they could have been 55, 60, 70 years old, right? They put $10,000. It went up. And then also now they've got money and they can retire. Yeah. Uh, or they could be like literally like a 25-year-old kid and, you know, whatever. But I think like what people forget is there's like uh and this day is a little old there's probably at this point over a hundred thousand wallets that have more than a million dollars of bitcoin in it wow right i think i'm pretty sure that's correct when you think about what that does to like an entire generation of people it's crazy yeah and then that's just bitcoin and then you look at all this other stuff and so uh recently barry silbert uh from digital currency group he tweeted out and he was like the amount of wealth creation is like staggering mm -hmm. in this industry. That's all great. But who cares about like the money as much as like, imagine being somebody who wanted to retire, couldn't, and then all of a sudden does something that they can retire. So like, that's all the positive stuff that I enjoy. When you flip it around and you look at like the hater side, yeah, I just always go back to like, I feel bad for them. Mm -hmm. Like, man, you have such a shitty life that you're literally on the internet talking shit to somebody who you don't know, yeah. right? 
And then, like, the best part always is, like, I'll DM them sometimes. <laughs> and then they're super nice, right? Like, immediately they're like, oh, I'm so nice. Like, whatever. And so it's just, like, uh, when you look at it almost, like, empathetically and you're yeah. just like, man, that's really – you woke up this morning and that is what you decided to say on the internet. Yeah. Like, are you okay? <laughs> right? What you realize is, like, one, it's easy because it's, like, super non-personal, right? So people can attack people, like, all this kind of stuff. There's pseudonymity and, and whatever. Yeah. But then the second thing is just, like, if you meet them in person, they would never say that. And by the way, you would never like say anything back either. And so like, I think like for all the benefits of the internet, there's downsides. Yep. Uh, and so if you asked me this question two years ago, I said all kinds of crazy stuff, like really crazy stuff. Um, now I just kind of look at it and I'm just like, man, like you, you can participate in this just as much. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll tell you uh, one last story before we go. I went to dinner recently. Uh, Plano was there with me. I don't want to say who was there, but there was very successful people there. And one of the people was uh, a hedge fund slash private equity person. They had no clue, any of the Bitcoin, crypto, any of this stuff. And at one point during the dinner, they started to go on and on and on all about uh, the GameStop longs were manipulating the market and screwing the hedge funds. I just sat there, listened for a little bit. And Plano was looking at me like, I know this dude ain't going to sit here and not say anything. <laughs> and so at some point, I just very cordially was like, yeah, but like, aren't the hedge funds manipulating the market as well with all of their research and, you know, their comments and going on television and like all this stuff and everything? Yeah. And to his credit, he was like, oh, that's a good point, right? Like, like that's fair. But I think that's like what the internet's done, right? Is like the internet didn't necessarily like swing markets or do anything. All it did was it created more accessibility and then it allowed for everyone else to do the same thing that the hedge funds are doing, right? Mm -hmm. or, do, or professional investors or whatever. And so to me, like the people who are mad about this, usually like there was a guy literally today who told me, uh, I tweeted out and I was like, if you're a young person, don't go work at a traditional bank or traditional asset manager. Like all of the innovation and most of the returns moving forward is gonna be in crypto. Like go get a job in crypto. Mm -hmm. Of course, this guy runs like a $4 billion hedge fund, which by the way, if you're on a $4 billion hedge fund and you're talking shit on the internet, like you should be doing way better things or your investors should take their money back. Uh, and so he basically was like, look, uh, this is stupid advice. If you get a job offer from like Goldman Sachs or Susquehanna or any of these places, like you should go take it. And I was like, hey man, like you're confusing. Like take Susquehanna, for example. They're not a traditional asset manager. Like they're one of the biggest players in crypto. So like, sure, go work, but go work on their crypto desk. And he was like, oh, uh, trading equities at Susquehanna is better than any job you guys have. And like the response I want to say, frankly, which I didn't, I actually typed it out and deleted it because it wasn't worth my time, mm -hmm. was like, dude, we can compare your hedge fund returns to like literally strangers on the internet who just held Bitcoin for the last five years because they destroyed you and you're charging two and 20 and they literally are better at your job than you are, <laughs> right? And so like, sure, returns end up like being the scoreboard. Yep. But at the end of the day, like all you're seeing is like, it's fear. They're literally scared. So if you're trading public equities, you're doing all this stuff, you have a decision. Either you can adapt or you will die. Like you, your business will be disrupted because everything is going to move to the open public blockchains. And so when I just think through that, I'm like, all right, so if somebody's being aggressive or like negative, either literally something's probably wrong and like be empathetic or two, like they're fearful. And like when they're fearful, like, Hey man, you see the same thing I do. It's just either you operate out of fear or you operate out of optimism and like optimism always wins. Optimism always wins. Yeah. So like, you know, whatever, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, you know, at, at some point, literally, you just throw your hands up and you're just like, whatever, I'm going to do my own thing. It's like, not knock, worth the time. Yeah, knock yourselves out, whatever. So, uh, by the way, if you're a young person, you go work at uh, trading equity somewhere, then you probably should uh, have an intelligence test because that's probably not the best thing to do. So, <laughs> all right, man, tracehq.com. Tracehq.com. All right, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, Mike uh, underscore underscore Gantz. Two, oh, two underscores. underscores. Yeah. All right. It's tough to get it. Tough to get a handle. Yeah. Mike, 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 Mike Gonzalez is a common name. <laughs> Do you want to tell a story real quick? Uh, no, we'll save, we'll save it for next time. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. It was fun.